Amen. Please be seated. And so today we will be thinking biblically about deacons in the church. Not only about the qualifications of deacons, but also the history about how the ministry of deacons came to be. And I know, I understand, just about now, someone may be asking, I am not a deacon, and I don't plan to become one. How is this message relevant to me? Well, I'm ready for you. Let me explain. When you see the word deacon in our Bibles, in the original, the Greek word for deacon is this, is the word diakonos. That word diakonos literally means to raise dust. It speaks of someone who is in such a hurry to complete his work that he runs, raising dust behind him. Have you ever seen someone like that? Everything they do, they have to do it fast. They're like the road runner, you know, beep, beep. When they run, they have to have dust behind them because they're always in a hurry. Well, that's the word picture for the meaning of this Greek word diakonos. It means to raise dust. But it speaks of deacons not being procrastinators, but they act fast to fulfill their duties. Now, as I said, the word diakonos in our English translations, of course, appears as a deacon. But it is interesting to note that diakonos appears in the New Testament almost 30 times, and yet it is translated in English only three times as deacon. For example, in Philippians in chapter 1, we read, Paul and Timothy, bond service of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, including the elders and diaconos, deacons. But many other times, this word appears in the Bible as minister. For example, we see this in Romans in chapter 13, where the Bible says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for it is a minister of God to you for good. That word minister there in the original is the word diakonos. But the vast majority of the times where you see the word diakonos in the original, it is translated for us in our Bibles in the English translation as this. A servant. The vast majority of times, this word appears as servant in the Bible. Even the Lord Jesus spoke of the word diakonos, referring to servants. We see that in Matthew in chapter 20, where the Lord says, Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. All the words that the Lord used in reference to service, to serve, to be a servant, are all based on the root Greek word diakonos. And so, according to the words of Christ himself, whether you have been appointed by your local church to be a deacon or not, all of us have been appointed by the Lord himself to be a diakonos, to be a servant, as we have just as we have sung this morning, that beautiful song that our brother Paul DiMano has written, that it is our desire in Christ that the Lord would give us a servant heart. We want to have a servant's heart because for that reason the Lord has called us into his kingdom, 
to glorify his name. As it says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your diakonos, shall be your servant. And that's how this message is relevant to you, to all of us. Now, we may ask, how was the ministry of deacons created? To understand how the ministry of deacons came to be, we must go to the book of Acts in chapter 6. Beginning verse 1, the Bible says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, who were the Hellenistic Jews and the native Jews? 2,000 years ago, during the days of the early church, there were two types of Jews in the church in Jerusalem, the Hellenistic Jews and the native Jews. The native Jews were the ones who had been living in Israel during the times of the Roman Empire. They spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, but they also spoke Greek. But they continued to follow faithfully the Jewish culture, all the Jewish traditions. The Hellenistic Jews, they were also called Greek Jews because they were descendants of those who had been taken captive by many other nations, but especially by Alexander the Great, who had taken the Jews captive into Greece. Once those Jews arrived in Greece, they began to learn Greek. And not only that, they began to speak primarily Greek, not Hebrew, and they began also to adopt the, the Greek culture and Greek traditions. And now that the Roman Empire had become the world empire, they had defeated the Greeks, those Jews who were in Greece, they were then brought into the land of Israel under the domination of the Roman Empire. The native Jews there, they were always proud of the fact that they had always spoken Hebrew, that they had always lived in Israel, and that they always spoke the language spoken by the patriarchs. That created a conflict between the native Jews and the Greek Jews because they thought the Greek Jews thought that the native ones were being prejudiced toward them. In our days, it would be like we could say that the Greek Jews were playing the race card. They were referring to the native ones saying, hey, you guys are treating us like we are inferior, but we are as Jews as much as you are. And so that antagonism began between the two groups, the Greek Jews and the native Jews. Some of the Greek Jews, they never accepted Christianity. And in fact, you can read in the book of Acts in chapter 9, verse 29, that they even tried to kill Paul the Apostle. But some of them did profess to have faith in Christ, and they joined the church in Jerusalem, where the native Jews were also. And so you could see that once both groups were in the same church, despite the fact that they had both professed to have embraced Christianity, you could see that there was some antagonism between them still, especially by what we read here. In the days of the early church, there was a daily serving of food, much like our benevolence ministry today. But when the church was smaller, to manage a benevolence ministry, to manage the daily distribution of food was much easier. But now the church in Jerusalem, as we see in verse 1, they had increasing number. Some estimate that the church in Jerusalem had grown to over 20,000 members to distribute food daily to 20,000 people, to thousands of people, was a much harder task to manage. And lo and behold, it wasn't long between the Greek Jews, 
before the Greek Jews began to say, our Greek Jewish widows, they are not receiving enough food. And it is because of the native Jews, because they are favoring their widows. Of course, we do not know if that is true or if that was just a perception on the part of the Greek Jews because of their bias. Be that as it may, the conflict arose within the church. And the Bible says in verse 2, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. The conflict came to the knowledge of the twelve apostles. And they said, they summoned the congregation of the disciples. The apostles they called for a church meeting. And during the church meeting, some had suggested that the apostles should be the ones in charge of the benevolence ministry. That the apostles should be the one in charge of the food distribution. But the apostles were quick to crush that idea. They said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve the tables. Mind you, the apostles were not saying this because serving the table was something beneath them. No, of course not. They, more than anyone else, they had walked with Christ for three years. And now that their understanding had been opened after the resurrection of Christ, they would remember all the examples that the Lord gave them about being a servant, especially in the upper room when the Lord washed their feet. But when they say that it is not desirable for us to serve tables, it is simply because if they were in charge of the food distribution for thousands of people, they might as well quit being apostles. The ministry that the Lord himself had called them to do. So they said, no, we cannot do that. But they suggested and they directed the church to do this. In verse 3 and 4, it says, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The apostles, probably led by Peter, he mentioned to the church, it is better if you select seven men of good reputation, men who could not be accused of being partial to the Greek Jewish widows or to the native widows. It is, it is important that you select men, above all, men of wisdom, men filled with the Holy Spirit. And the, and the apostles, they confirmed, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the Bible tells us in verse 5, that statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Notice that the Bible says that the directive from the apostles was accepted by the whole church, showing us how the Holy Spirit was working to eliminate any divisions in the church and to strengthen the unity of the body of Christ. The whole church accepted the fact that the disciples, that the apostles had made that directive. And it is important for us to understand this. When the Bible says that the whole congregation accepted that, it is important for us to realize that all seven names that you see here, they are all Greek names. All seven selected by the church with the approval of the whole church, they are all Greek Jews. Obviously, in an attempt to correct the presumed wrong that had been done against the Greek Jewish widows. What is important for us to not miss here is that the Bible says that the entire church accepted that directive. Even then, the native Jews. 
The native Jews, they accepted that directive only because the Holy Spirit was working within the church. In the flesh, they could have said, uh-uh, these are all Hellenistic Jews. They were complaining about us, that we were favoring our widows. Now they are going to be favoring their widows. How about our widows, not their widows? It would be an argument to no end. But thank God that the Holy Spirit, as the Bible tells us in Ephesians in chapter 4, in verse 3, it is the Holy Spirit of God who works the unity of the church through the bond of peace. The Lord made it so, so that the church was once again brought to an environment of peace, especially by the fact that all seven men selected, they were Greek Jews. And the Bible doesn't tell us specifically any information about those seven men, except that we know that Stephen, he became soon the very first martyr in the history of the Christian church when he was stoned to death with the consent of a man named Saul, whom later would become the great Paul the Apostle. And we also know Philip, he would become a great evangelist, as we read in Acts chapter 8, as he was an instrument from God in the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. We don't know much about the other five men, but the Bible tells us in verse 6, And those seven men, and these, they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. After the apostles prayed, it was similar to an ordination ceremony. They laid their hands on those seven men, and these, brothers and sisters, became the very first deacons in the history of the church. These were the first men called to the ministry of service as deacons. Now, what does the Bible say about the qualifications of deacons? You may recall that Almost two months ago, I shared with you the qualifications for those who wanted to become elders. And I showed you these 14 qualifications that must be exhibited in the life of an elder for him to be considered for ordination. But you also may recall that these 14 qualifications are merely secondary to the main requirement. And what is the main requirement? That he must be above reproach. What is the main requirement for a deacon to be considered for ordination to that office? He must be above reproach. The main requirement for deacons is the same as that for elders. The Bible tells us, as we have read in verse 10 of our basic text, these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Similar to what the Bible requires of candidates to eldership, the Bible says that those who are being considered to become deacons in the church, they must first undergo a period of evaluation. And during that evaluation, the elders will be checking the, the candidate's personal background, personal history, biblical doctrine, and of course, as the apostle said, if, they, if he is a man of good reputation. All with the goal of determining if the candidate is beyond reproach, above reproach. And what does that mean? What does it mean for someone to be above reproach? Does that mean that the church leaders must find the perfect human being? Of course not. If that were the case, then aside from Christ Jesus, no one could be selected either as an elder or as a deacon. But to be above reproach means that there is no open accusation against the candidate once the period of evaluation is completed. No open ac accusation is discovered, but 
any issues that have happened in the candidate's past has already been resolved. They have been resolved and they don't pose any threat. There is no commandment in the Bible that would preclude that, that candidate from being ordained as a deacon. And so, as we have established that the main requirement, that the main qualification in the life of someone who wants to become a deacon is that he must be above reproach, we can erase all that we see here as qualifications for elders and see exactly what the Bible tells us as the qualifications for deacons. The Bible tells us specifically the qualifications for a deacon in his testimony. And the Bible also says the specific qualifications for a deacon in his trustworthiness, as we will see. It is interesting to note that the Bible doesn't even mention any qualifications for a deacon regarding his temperament. And one of the most glaring differences between the qualifications of deacons and elders is that the deacon, he is not required to have the ability to teach. And so that can be erased as well. Therefore, the role of a deacon is primarily that of a servant who is above reproach in his testimony and his trustworthiness. What does the Bible say about the qualifications of deacons in his testimony and in his trustworthiness? We see that in the verses we read, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. The qualifications we see in these verses are related to the candidate's testimony. He must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, but husband of one wife. Dignified, when the Bible says that deacons must be men of dignity, this is the same word as we saw when speaking of the qualifications of elders, that a deacon must be someone who is respectable. If the church cannot respect him as a man, how can the church respect him as a deacon? Dignified mean he is respected within the Christian community. The Bible also says that he must be someone not with a double tongue. Not with a double tongue, which means being a double tongued person is someone who changes his position depending on the audience. If he's speaking to people here who thinks one way, he will say exactly what they want to hear. If he's speaking to people here who thinks another way, he will say exactly what they would want to hear. He's a two-faced person. A deacon must be the opposite. He must be firm in his convictions, no matter the audience. He is someone whose word is credible. The Bible also says that he must be someone who is not addicted to much wine. Now, you may recall that in the qualifications of elders, the Bible says that an elder must not be addicted to wine. Because the Bible says that the deacon must not be addicted to much wine, some say that that is a biblical allowance that allows a deacon to drink more than an elder. But that is ludicrous. Um, obviously, that's not the intent here. Uh, what the Bible wants us to understand, the idea here is that whether it is a deacon or an elder, that both, they must not be known for being a drunkard. Whether the Bible says not addicted to wine or not addicted to much wine, he must be someone who is not controlled by drinking. And lastly, the Bible says he must be the husband of one wife. You may recall, it's the same requirement for elders. This does not disqualify those who are single, widow, widowers, or even biblically divorced. But those who happen to be married, 
Paul is saying that they must be the husband of one wife, meaning they must be faithful to their wife without having companions on the side. Now, regarding the deacon's trustworthiness, the Bible says deacons likewise must be not fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. These two are qualities that are related to the candidate's trustworthiness. First, Paul says that he must not be someone fond of sordid gain. You may recall this is similar to what he had said to elders, that they must be free from the love of money. A deacon must not be someone fond. He must not be someone attracted to making money in a sordid way, in a fraudulent way. Why? Because many a times deacons are involved in financial matters in the church. But also the Bible says that he must be someone who holds to the mystery of faith with a pure conscience, with a clear conscience. He must hold to the mystery of the faith. What is the mystery of the faith? When we read the word mystery in the New Testament, it refers to something that was obscure, not completely revealed in the Old Testament, but it is now clear to us saints in the New Covenant in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, God was the God of a nation, the nation of Israel. In the New Testament, God is the God of individuals. In the Old Testament, God's presence was among his people. In the New Testament, God's presence is within me and within you, within each and every one of us who are saved and have the Holy Spirit of God within us. When the Bible says that the candidate to become a deacon within the church, he must hold to the mystery of the faith, it simply means that he must believe the Bible in its entirety. In its entirety. He is not someone who is called to be a teacher, but he is called to believe in the Bible. He may not teach the Bible, but he certainly must believe in the Bible. And that is what the Bible says. When the Bible is speaking to us saying that he must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, what does that mean? It means that he is someone who talks the talk, but he also walks the walk. He is someone who is authentic in what he says he believes. But it's still, one may say, this is what it is required of someone to become a deacon, that he must have a clear conscience when believing in the Bible. My question to you is this. How do you know if the person sitting next to you has a clear conscience? How can you know if anyone here has a pure conscience? Obviously, only God and the person know. This is a matter between the candidate and God, because they are the only two who know for sure if the person is a fake, if the person is a hypocrite, or if he is the real deal. Only God can determine that. And I believe if someone were to say, how can the elders, how can the church leaders know if someone then is qualified to become a deacon? How can they know? Someone has suggested during the period of evaluation, they should have a written questionnaire. And the number one question should be, hey, do you have a pure conscience? But that doesn't fly. Because if I am someone who do not have a clear conscience and I don't care about lying, what is going to be one more lie for me to say, yes, my conscience is completely clear. That's not going to work. But this is a subtle reminder from the Lord to all church leaders that the church belongs to him. This is a reminder that all church leaders, before nominating anyone as a, to become a deacon or an elder, that they must go to the Lord in prayer. Because he is the one who knows the, 
the person's heart, he is the one who knows those who truly should have been nominated by the church leadership to become an official, to become someone as a member of the office in the church, let it be as an elder or let it be as a deacon. The church belongs to God and not to man. What are the duties of deacons? As you saw by how the ministry of deacons began because of the conflict that arose between those two groups because of the distribution of food, it is obvious that we could say that one of the duties that deacons would be involved with would be the physical needs of the church. A deacon's primary responsibility is to take care of the physical needs of the church so that the elders can concentrate on the church's spiritual needs. However, you are not going to find a chapter and verse in the Bible telling you a bulleted list of all the duties that a deacon must perform. Each local church must determine the duties of a deacon according to the current needs. Obviously, as I said, one of the obvious examples for deacons to be in charge of is the ministry of benevolence. Why? Because that's how their ministry was started in first place. And the deacons then, 2,000 years ago, they would collect the donated food, they would collect the donated goods, they would then organize those goods on tables, and they would be in charge in the distribution of those food to those in need. But deacons were also involved in the finance aspects of the church, as it is today. Many churches appoint deacons to financial administration, to collecting the offerings, to counting the offerings, to make bank deposits. But also, many churches, they include deacons in a welcome team as greeters and ushers to be the first smile that a guest will see when coming to the church. And there are many other duties that can be assigned to a deacon. Other churches, they make the deacons to be facility managers, to clean up the entire church building, to being in charge of maintenance and repairs. As we see as a job description in the corporate world, deacons are those in charge of all these things, plus any other duties as assigned. They are the ones in charge of the physical needs of the church. They are the true servants in the local church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. Now, can women serve as deaconesses in the church? That was one question that we cannot leave unanswered. Can women serve as deaconesses in the church? Now, this is a very controversial subject in the church. As you heard last week, Paul Johnson preaching in the role of women in the church, he, according to what the scripture says, it is clear, it is biblically undeniable that a woman cannot serve as an elder in the church. It is clear that any church that ordains women as pastors are acting in blatant disobedience to God and to his word. However, can women serve as deaconesses? The Bible tells us in the verses we've read, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Women must, likewise, be dignified. Now, when speaking of the qualifications of deacons, where Paul uses the word women, some say that he is referring to deacons' wives. 
He had spoken about the qualifications of deacons, and now in verse 11, he begins to talk about the qualifications of the deacons' wives. However, when Paul spoke of the qualifications of elders, he made no mention whatsoever of the qualifications of the elder's wife. And it stands to reason that if it would be important for the Spirit of God to inspire the apostle to speak about the qualifications of a deacon's wife, it would be even more important for the Spirit of God to give us the directions on the qualifications of an elder's wife. It stands to reason, it is more logical to think that when Paul refers to women here, he is referring not to deacons' wives, but he's referring to women serving in the church as deaconesses. What are the qualifications for those who want to serve as deaconesses in the church? Notice that the Bible says deacons likewise must be men of dignity. Women must likewise be dignified, meaning that the same, the essential qualifications that we see for deacons in the church must be the same essential qualifications for women who want to serve as deaconesses in their local church, as we saw in verses 8 and 9. Now, what are the qualifications? What are those? As I said, they are the same as we saw in verses 8 and 9, where the Bible says, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to wine, or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Not double-tongued, just like with men. They must be someone who are firm in their convictions, this, despite the audience that they can be talking to, be speaking to, they are firm in what they believe. They are not addicted to much wine, as we saw what that means, and they are not fond of sordid gain of sordid gain, because just like their male counterparts, deaconesses can also many a times be in charge of the church's financial administration um, by being in charge of collecting the offerings or distributing uh, or making bank deposits and many other as such duties as that involving financial administration. And lastly, they also must be someone who have a clear conscience, as we mentioned here, that only goes to point out to the fact that all church leaders must present any nominees before the Lord in prayer to see if indeed has the stamp of approval from God. But notice, just like for men, Paul said deacons likewise must be men of dignity. He says in verse 11 for, about deaconesses, they must be dignified, they must be women of dignity. And what does that mean? What exactly is the meaning of that? He explains in three ways women who are candidates to become deaconesses, they must be found dignified in three specific ways. First, they must not be malicious gossips. Literally, what Paul said in the original is they must not be devils, in the sense that they must not be involved in any slandering life. He must not be... They must not be someone known for making false accusations against people. In other words, they are not known as liars. Secondly, he says, they must be dignified because they are temperate. They are not intoxicated. They do not allow anything to cloud their judgment. But they are firm in their convictions and they are vigilant. And lastly, Paul says that a woman being considered for the office of a deaconess in the church, the Bible says that she must be someone found to be faithful in all things. 
In other words, she's known within the church as someone who volunteers, someone who serves, someone who has a faithful uh, testimony in serving the church. 2,000 years ago, deaconesses were, many, many of them were involved in the care for sick believers, much like modern-day nurses. And they would provide for the poor, and they were involved in many services that would be, uh, that the church would attribute to them. Now, the Bible tells us in Romans in chapter 16 of one apparent example of a deaconess. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sancreia, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. That word commend means she has my full approval. She has my full approval. You should give her 100% consideration and respect because our sister Phoebe, she is a servant of the church, which is a sancria. And by now I know that you know that that word servant in the original is the word diaconos, meaning that Paul is affirming that Phoebe was a deaconess in the church in sancria. She received the great responsibility after Paul he wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the letter to the Romans. The Bible tells us that Paul gave to Phoebe the responsibility of carrying the epistle to the Romans, that great theological treatise that we see in our Bibles today. It was her responsibility to carry it from the church to the Romans, to the church in Rome, to receive that inspired letter from the Apostle Paul. Now, in verse 12, the Bible says, Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Now, because Paul began speaking about the qualifications of deacons, and then in verse 11, he starts speaking about women, and then in verse 12, he goes back to talk about the qualifications of deacons, those who say that the women referred in verse 11 are the deacon's wives and not a deaconesses. They say that because they say it wouldn't make sense for Paul to be speaking about deacons, then interrupt his thought to talk about deaconesses, and then go back to his thought about talking about deacons. But we must understand that at first, Paul was referring to deacons in general, those who were single or married. He then goes to speak about the qualifications of deaconesses, those who would serve as deaconesses in the church. But now, here in verse 12, he is speaking specifically about those deacons who are married. They must be good managers of their children and their own houses. And so this is a third qualification that we see under trustworthiness. They must not be fond of sordid gain. They must have a clear conscience, and they must be a good household manager. In other words, they must be a good spiritual leaders in their own home to their wife and to their children. Verse 13 says, For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Both deacons and deaconesses are there in the local church to serve. And the Bible says that those who have served well as deacons or deaconesses, they obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Those who are faithful in their ministry of deacons and deaconesses, they obtain two great blessings. 
The first blessing they receive is that they have a high standing within the church. It is a public blessing. They are publicly recognized as those who are faithful in their service. They are publicly recognized because of all that they do. It is undeniable. The church sees all the work that a deacon and a deaconess are doing in the church. But the Bible also says that not only they have a high standing, they achieve a blessing publicly, but they also have a great blessing privately. The Bible says, and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. They have that deep assurance personally that what they do, they are doing not for men, but they are doing for God. Let me ask you, do you know those who have served well here at Grace Gospel Church as deacons and deaconesses? Perhaps some of them are not here with us today because they are volunteering in auxiliary ministries so that we all could be here inside this worship room to glorify the Lord. They volunteer at Sunday school, they volunteer to nursery, they volunteer to financial administration. Do you know the deacons and deaconesses in your your church? For those who are here today, may I ask you, would you please stand? Amen. Amen. God bless you. The Bible says, because you have served well, you will receive a high standing in the eyes of the church. And I pray that each and every one of us will be inspired, that each and every one of us will be encouraged, not simply to be a deacon or a deaconess, but to remember that the word that the Lord has spoken to us is that we all must be a diaconos, that we all must be a servant, that we all must servant's heart as we sing. We pray that the Spirit of God will continue to minister to our hearts in that way, that we would sing as we sang through that song, Lord, give me a servant's heart. Show me how to start. Help me to serve others, Lord. If I haven't spoken these verses to you a million times, then I have not spoken these verses to you at all. But I hope you remember that I have mentioned to you these verses in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, where the Bible says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The Bible is clear in telling us that if we are saved, we have received a spiritual gift. If you are truly saved, you have received a spiritual gift from the Lord. What is yours? And how are you using it to serve God and glorify his name? The Bible says in verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. And whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Some of you may have received a spiritual gift to speak as a teacher or as a preacher of the word of God or as a singer and musician to speak the word of God through song. And some of you may have received a spiritual gift to serve. How are you using it for the glory of God in your service? Even those of you who say, well, I guess I don't have to serve because I only received a speaking gift. Well, that may be so, but overall, remember the words of Christ when he said that all of us must serve? The Bible tells us in Galatians in chapter 5, through love serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Perhaps you have not been officially called to be a deacon or a deaconess in the church, but we have all been called by the Lord to be a diaconos, to be a servant. As he says once again in Matthew chapter 23, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The greatest among you shall be your diaconos, shall be your servant. It is my prayer that the Spirit of God will minister to your heart and will stir you from within to say, Lord, I want to serve you all the days of my life. Give me a servant's heart. Lord, show me how to start. Let us pray. Father, it is such a privilege to be here in your presence, knowing that you have called us to be your servants, knowing that you have called us, Lord, to this amazing privilege, all of us from dust, all of us, Father, in our flesh and blood, that you would use us some way, somehow, to serve in your kingdom. And I pray, Father, that none of us will leave this room of worship here today without having that determination and without making that decision in our hearts that we want to serve you more. Especially beginning tomorrow, Lord, as we want to dedicate our time for prayer and reading your word. Bless us during our time of fasting this week. May your name be glorified in this way. Oh God, I pray that we would truly be found to be your servants. That you would use us according to the spiritual gifts that you have given us. But even if our gifts are only speaking gifts, Lord, press this in our hearts for us to serve you anytime, at all places, in whatever we say, in whatever we do. May your name be glorified in our midst today. And I pray for those who perhaps do not know you as Savior, that your Holy Spirit may have ministered to their hearts so that they can understand that now you want to be the God of individuals, that you want to be their God for the salvation of their soul. And I pray, O God, that you would grant them the repentance of sin, that they will recognize that they cannot continue to live without you, but that they will confess Jesus Christ as their Savior for the glory of your name and for the salvation of of their souls. Bless us now, we pray, as we worship you, we glorify you for calling us to be your servants. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Glory to God. And 